0: All right, today's scripture reading is from Mark 2, 18 through 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came out and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. And the new new from the old and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. That was almost offensive that Sean was not going to have you cheer for me. I, I honestly thought that was way too weak of a cheer. So the fact that he was going to do nothing. Truly, this is great uh, to be with you guys. Um, as Sean said, my role is uh, the lead pastor of Redemption Church, which come this fall, will actually have 10 congregations because you guys will no longer be the baby. South Scottsdale is going to launch, and it is... Just a huge delight for me to watch these churches get off the ground Uh, from inception. You all have planted in somewhat of a unique way. Redemption congregations launch in different ways. Some of them launch with hundreds, and you guys can't kind of have Flagstaff launch with like a few families, and our belief fundamentally is in the local church. We delineate ourselves a little bit in saying we're multi-congregational from multi-site in this way. We believe that what happens on the ground, needs to be fundamentally in person. The word that people would use a lot is incarnational, like in the flesh. We believe that. We believe decisions are made best at the local level. We believe churches need to grow in a healthy way, the same way children would, that you don't want to expect a three-year-old to act like a 13-year-old, and the same way we don't want to expect you guys a few months in to act like a church that's been around for a decade. And so this is, this is really significant because we believe local churches are one of the primary means in which God displays his love for the world through a community of people who actually believe this. So my job's kind of to lead in the mission and vision and direction of Redemption Church at large while uh, the pastors locally are engaged on ongoing mission of equipping you all to actually be the one... Doing uh, the ministry. So today we're going to be in Mark chapter 2. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's some Bible kind of on the corners by where you'll take communion. Um, I'm sorry, not where you'll take communion, but where, where you'll give if you need to grab one. If not, pull out your phone. Uh, Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 18 through verse 22. We just read it. The whole theme of the message today is around this idea of new. And something new happened to me last night. Um, I never before knew that I was a Wisconsin basketball fan until last night. And I actually was very, very delighted by the outcome. So that was new uh, for me. When... That was for all of you U of A fans that are are in here. Um, When... Bear down all the way down and be done. Um... So here's the deal. When you communicate, uh, people will tell you in your introduction that you need to capture the listeners, who is you all, to tell you why you should actually listen. So oftentimes you'll begin uh, a message through an illustration to draw you all in to show you why you should actually listen. Listen. Uh, In the past few weeks, I uh, go through Facebook often. I I post rarely, but I'll go through Facebook and just look at what people are posting, what people are feeding. And there's a mom in this congregation um, that posted something I thought was absolutely fantastic. And she'll be an unnamed mom, but she posted this. She said, some people wonder why moms so often talk about coffee and wine. And she said, the reason is, is because cocaine is illegal. As the father of four kids, I so identified with that. We are not promoting cocaine at Redemption Peoria, but it's funny. It makes a point. But there is something fundamentally about these good gifts that God's given us in the world, like coffee and wine, that are appealing to us. And so let me draw you into why you should listen in a pretty trivial way to start off with. But today's message is fundamentally about parties. Wedding celebrations, some of the greatest parties that I've ever been to, or my friends' weddings, or my weddings. Jesus is talking about a feast that includes wine, and he's saying that a feast and wine fundamentally have more to do with reality than many of the other things that we experience in life. Feasting, parties, wine, and Jesus. I'm convinced that many people have a a massive, massive misunderstanding of Jesus. And if you happen to be sitting in these chairs today and you think, yes, I have friends who have a massive misunderstanding of Jesus, I want to just stop you for a minute and say, I think you may have a massive misunderstanding of Jesus. And I believe one of the greatest ways... To disrupt our view of Jesus by putting in front of us the real view of Jesus is to actually read the Gospels. Whether we're a Christian or we're not a Christian, the reading of the Gospels does something to us when we actually encounter the real Christ as he's presented to us in the scriptures. You guys all know the name Albert Einstein. You don't have to be Einstein to know that name. You hear about him all the time. He's this genius that lived. He was not a Christian admittedly not a Christian. He grew up Jewish, and he says this about reading the Gospels. He says, as a child, I received instruction in both the Bible and the Talmud, Jewish religious text. He says, I am a Jew, but I am enthralled. Here are the words that he says here. But I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. That's Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I'm enthralled with Jesus. Then he says this. No one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. Jesus is too colossal for the pen of phrase mongers. No matter how artful they may be, no man can dispose of Christianity with a simple bon mot, with just the flip of the hand. He's saying, when you encounter the Jesus of the Gospels, this man is doing things that is not normal. He's saying things that are so provocative and at times so sly. And he says, even me who is not a Christian, I don't follow Jesus. I am so enthralled by this man. This man is so magnificent, so colossal that no matter the people that are the most artful with the pen in their prose of their writing cannot write how amazing this man truly is. This is one of the things when we encounter the Gospels that we must understand is let Jesus be Jesus. Let us slow down enough to see what's actually happening that we might be encountered by the real Christ. Now, I acknowledge there's people probably in this room who would admittedly say I'm not a Christian or who are struggling with that idea. So I would just say to you and to all of us sitting in this room, let us encounter the real Christ because people's perceptions of Jesus change as they encounter the real Christ. So this is a scene about Jesus where Jesus is questioned again by the religious leaders of the day. And in most Bibles, it'll say it's a question. This whole scene starts with a question about fasting, which feels like a very religious practice. All of us would say that's a very religious practice. It says this, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, for that is what religious people did. They were fasting. And people came and said to him, That's Jesus. Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. I mean, Jesus, you're supposed to be a religious teacher. People, when they come across you, call you rabbi because you are a religious teacher. Religious people do religious things. John's disciples are fasting. The Pharisees are fasting. Why is it, Jesus, that your disciples are not fasting? And Jesus responds and answers them. Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Here's Jesus' answer, and we're going to build it out. He ultimately looks at them and says, I am the party. Jesus is The party, allow me to explain myself, the tendency with a passage like this is to make this passage about fasting. That's the tendency, because that's the question that was brought, therefore this passage is about fasting. I want to submit to you that in Jesus' answer, we see fundamentally that this passage isn't primarily about fasting. Fasting was a means for Jesus to say, I'm the party. Fasting was a means for Jesus to say, you all as human beings whom I created in my image have a passion for partying, have a passion for the feast. And he's saying to them, I am the feast. This passage is far more about the character of Jesus and about what his coming into the world actually means then it is about fasting. It's about him, his character in his coming, and then how that reorients the world and therefore things like fasting. Bottom line of what Jesus is saying about fasting is this. You don't fast when it's a feast. You don't grieve at a celebration. Sean said to you guys last week that he grew up in the charismatic movement, so we're going to get a little response here from you guys just to celebrate the charismatic movement. So say this with me really quick. We don't fast when it's a feast. We feast. We We don't grieve when it's a celebration. Okay, as a parent of four kids, this is what the logic of this is. When you take your kids to Disneyland for the first time, And they throw fits. It's like, what? For one, as a father, you're going, do you know how much time I spent planning this? And do you know how much money we're spending here? And like, this is the happiest place on earth. (laughs) You don't throw fits at Disneyland. Or this is like when your spouse says to you, we need to get on an eating plan. Like November 15th. And you go, no, wait a minute, you don't go on an eating plan before the holidays, right? And then you're like, we don't go on an eating plan at spring break. We don't go on an eating plan at summer break. And then your spouse is like, well, then we don't go on an eating plan, right? Like, ever. You think, yeah, kind of. But that's what Jesus is saying, is that you don't fast when it's a feast. So let's look specifically at what... Jesus is actually saying here. So he's questioned about fasting. you got to understand something. They bring this to Jesus as a challenge to what he is teaching. People always came to Jesus because he was an enigma. Right? There, if you follow athletics very much, there's some real arrogant teams, typically youth teams, that will say things, or arrogant fans, maybe even of college sports, that when they're really good, they'll say things like this, loved or hated, the best are never ignored. And that's the idea of an enigma. That'd be like Kentucky right now. I'm not a huge fan of John Calipari, but he's an enigma, and you wonder what he's doing. He keeps winning. He keeps winning. I don't like Notre Dame, but I was cheering for Notre Dame last night. I don't really like Wisconsin, but I was cheering for Wisconsin last night. But when you encounter somebody that's both loved and hated, like, and Jesus was such an enigma, meaning people couldn't figure it out, that people were always challenging him. And Jesus oftentimes, when challenged, especially with a question that was meant to do him and his teaching harm, he responded with a counter question. He responded with a counter question. That's what Jesus does here fundamentally. These people come to him and ask him about fasting. And he changes the topic with another question. Now, let me give you a little context to their original question. Fasting was something that religious people did. But in fact, in the Old Testament, the Jews were only required to have one fast throughout the year. And it was at the Day of Atonement. But the Pharisees has added to the idea of fasting. They've added so much so that they were to fast two times a week from sunset to when the sun rose again. Two times a week. The second day of the week, which was Monday, because the first day of the week was Sunday. And then the fourth day of the week, which was Thursday. They would fast. And their purpose of fasting was fundamentally twofold. One was about mourning and grieving, to mourn and to grieve the way the world was, the way their lives were. And then the other one was to prove themselves righteous before God. So if you remember, there's a scene in chapter... Uh, Luke chapter 18, where there's a Pharisee and a tax collector. And when the Pharisee prays, he prays and says, God, I am a righteous man, not like the sinners and not like this tax collector. And his justification was, I fast two times a week and give a tenth of all I have. So fasting for these people was a religious Offering to God. It was religious in the sense that they were grieving the way things were, and it was religious in the sense that they were trying to prove themselves. Jesus' answer to the question of why his disciples don't fast, look at it, and Jesus says to them, here's the counter question Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. So, here's the idea. Clearly here, if you just read the passage, you'd know the bridegroom. Let's just wait a minute on who that is. Clearly here, the bridegroom is the disruptor. The bridegroom is like the company Uber. So Uber is on the scene and disrupts the taxi cab industry. Clearly here in the midst of this, they ask a question about fasting, and he says, Fasting is not appropriate because of the bridegroom. The bridegroom disrupts. And remember I said Jesus, when approached with a question that's hostile, responds with a counter question. In this counter question, I'm gonna use a big theological word here, is Christological. Okay, I'm gonna define this term for you here. It was it's Christological. Christ is not Jesus' last name. You guys know that? His name's not Jesus Christ. Christ meant messianic. The Christ was the Savior, and the Savior that all Jews knew if they knew their scripture was the Lord. Jonah 2.9 says salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. The logic consistently through the Bible is the Lord, the master, the Lord is the one who saves. That's why the phraseology Christians will say all the time is Jesus is both Lord first and Savior because the Lord in his very character is one who saves. So I'm saying to you, Savior, Christological. This comment is fundamentally Christological. When he says, when the bridegroom is here, the feast is here, there is no reason to fast. What they knew in the Old Testament was that the bridegroom, a wedding feast, was an illustration that was brought forward in the Old Testament, the wedding feast as the day the Savior would come. And then as that theme gets picked up in the New Testament, the bridegroom and the wedding are specifically spoken of directly in relation to Jesus. Jesus, why don't your disciples fast? And he says, the bridegroom is here. Now, oftentimes, there's this big struggle. Did Jesus actually claim to be God? In real simple terms, we could have a long conversation on this, but in real simple terms, as you read through the Gospels, these people consistently want to kill him and want to kill him on the accusation of blasphemy. The blasphemous remarks that they knew Jesus was making was that I am the Lord. I'm the savior. We're going to come to chapter three, verse six, where the Herodians and the Pharisees conspire together just a few verses after this to kill Jesus. Jesus is making a fundamental claim that I am the bridegroom. And when the bridegroom is here, you don't fast because it's a feast because I am the feast. I am the party. I am the The bridegroom. So compare with me for a minute. A fast, just simply stated, as you know, you may go, ah, never taken a religion course in college. And I don't know anything. I don't care. Just baseline. Even if you do intermittent fasting for dieting, whatever it is, compare a fast to a feast. So I'm going to help you out here for a minute. Fasting. When you fast, you're tired. You're weary. When you fast, you're hungry. When you fast, you're anxious And you're looking for it. I can't wait for the day that I eat or the time that I eat. So you're tired, you're weary, you're hungry, you're anxious. But at a feast, a feast is not tired and weary. It's lively. A feast is not hungry. It's full. A feast is not anxious or even forward-looking. A feast is in the moment. A wedding celebration, you're in the moment because it's lively and because you're eating, because you're having fun, and because you're full. So Jesus at this moment is going, The feast is at hand. Therefore, my disciples are to be in the moment, lively and full. He's making a very, very clear case about what his presence has brought. Now, from the very beginning, you've heard this. If you've come the last couple weeks, you've had this idea that Jesus came on the scene and he said that in his coming, the kingdom of God was at hand. Now, there is no such thing anywhere in the world of a kingdom that doesn't have a king. And the king determines what type of kingdom he brings. So the character of the kingdom or the characteristics that you experience in a kingdom are determined entirely by the character of the king. Jesus comes on the scene with all of who God is, displaying to the world all of who God is, and he says, I am here, therefore the presence of God is here. The bridegroom is here, who is the Christ, who is the king, therefore the kingdom of God is at hand. And when God is there, when you are in the very presence of God, it's a feast. It's not a time to fast. Do you see how Jesus is saying, this isn't primarily about fasting. It's primarily about me. And as we continue to read through the New Testament, there's these statements that should be made to the entirety of all of the world about Jesus Christ himself. There are statements in the Bible in Colossians chapter 1 that speaks about this very Jesus who we're reading about in the Gospel of Mark, saying that by him, by Jesus, and for him, all things were created. All things were created by Christ and for Christ. Now, if you were to read the Bible from the beginning to the end, you would see that all things being made by Christ and for Christ, that we as human beings were made in his image, but there was this moment of rebellion where we rebelled against God and against Jesus and essentially created something like the image of a broken down power line. When a power line breaks down and it falls, it's constantly going to look for its source. Sparks go everywhere, the energy's all coming out of it, and it moves to the right and to the left, up and down, because the power is surging through that line, looking for its connection. That is the illustration of us being disconnected from the one we were made by and for, as Colossians 16 says, is that humanity at large, the world at large is constantly looking for its source. So it looks to the right, it looks to the left, it looks up and it looks down in the end because it's disconnected from whom it was made by and for. And Jesus here comes on the scene, uses a question about religion and says fundamentally, your religious practices, your seeking of proving yourself, your desire of mourning, all has to end, I'm here. The connection is here. The one you were made by and for is here. Therefore, he's saying to them over and over and over again, he's putting himself in public places to say, look at me, see me, listen to me. And then he verbalizes these things. Come to me, all you who are under the fast, weary and heavy laden. And I'll give you rest. See me. Look at me. Come to me. Know I'm the point. Know I am the party. I'm the one this was made by and for. He then moves on. And he says. As long as the, they have the bridegroom with them. They cannot fast. The days will come. When the bridegroom is taken away. From them. And they will fast in that day. So now we see the party is about Jesus, but now we see the changing dynamic of the party. Christ had come into the world saying, I am the feast, I am the party, but now he says that the bridegroom will be taken away. Now watch this, not just that the bridegroom will depart because the party's over, the bridegroom actually is taken away and in that day, fasting gets reoriented. The dynamic of fasting gets entirely changed. That it isn't about the proving of yourself, but it's about the experiencing of something. The changing dynamic of the party. This is the week, this week, you've heard this already as we've been here. This is the week where we begin to celebrate Jesus' this Sunday, Jesus' triumphal entry. And then as we carry through what we call Holy Week, we then move in to Good Friday, this Day of death, the day of death for the Son of God. But then Sunday, we will celebrate the resurrection. And then if you really carry forth in the church calendar, you'd have the moment where we celebrated the ascension of Christ. Now, let me really clearly just walk you through something really simple and try to follow, because even if you're not churched, you've at least heard these holidays before. Maybe you've heard of Palm Sunday, but you've definitely, probably heard of Good Friday. You've definitely heard of Easter the resurrection. Christians fundamentally believe that in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, the whole world changed. That Jesus is the ultimate Uber, the ultimate disruptor, that everything is, here's the language of this passage, is new that what has been old is now changing and the new has come fundamentally in Jesus Christ. Christ's life, death, resurrection, ascension provide the logic for all of life and the logic, hear me, for when fasting is now appropriate. When fasting is now appropriate, it shows the appropriateness of all of life, but in this context, it's fasting. So I told you I have four kids. I have a nine-year-old boy, a seven-year-old boy, four-year-old girl and a three-year-old girl and a huge part of parenting no matter what age you're at is just showing your kids what's appropriate and what's not appropriate so when they were little kids one of the things you have to teach them is when it's appropriate to be loud and when you have to just be normal because right? they don't quite understand volume, especially in public. So we got this book. I don't know if you've ever seen it before. It's kind of like a maroon-purple book, and it has this kid that's bald cartoon, and like this, and it's called Quiet Loud. And as you go through the book, it'll say things like this. Whispering is quiet. Yelling is loud. That's the way you're supposed to read it to your kids. Crayons are quiet. Pots and pans are loud. Thinking is quiet. Singing is loud. My girls have been watching Taylor Swift shake it off. And so four and three, they're singing it. And I'm thinking, I'm a horrible father if I'm actually a Christian. Allowing them to sing about players and haters. But neither here nor there. (laughs) Libraries are quiet. Playgrounds are loud. So you're trying to teach them, hey, we're at dinner. Shut up. We're at the playground, go crazy, right? You're trying to show them what is appropriate. Nap time is quiet, playtime is loud. Well, Jesus is showing them, let me now show you when the time that it's appropriate to fast and why then it's appropriate to fast. When the bridegroom is taken away, that language of taken away, remember we said he doesn't depart, he's actually taken away. The taken away, all of New Testament scholars, I shouldn't say all, most, would look at, as speaking of a violent taking away. This is speaking of the time. He is making a prediction that there will be a moment that I will be violently, violently taken away from you. And in those times, it's appropriate to fast. He's speaking of what's coming up that we're going to celebrate Good Friday, that he's going to be violently taken, crucified, and killed. But he also knows that there is going to be a resurrection and the readers of this knew that Jesus was raised from the dead as we the church now does and then he ascended into heaven and sent his Holy Spirit. So this is where this gets a little crazy because they fasted in mourning and in religious proving themselves to God. He now says when I'm taken away you will fast but not for the purposes of proving yourself. You will fast, not even fundamentally to mourn. Because as you see all throughout the scriptures, this community that comes, the church, the believers who follow in the way of Jesus, post-resurrection and post-ascension were fundamentally meant to be a community of joy. You can read about that in the Gospels after the resurrection, after the ascension. They're a community of great joy into the book of Acts. We are called to be a people of joy and life. So if we're not a people who are going to fast to mourn and to prove ourselves, but we're actually going to be a community of joy who experiences the reality that God has done it on our behalf. Therefore, we have nothing to do. Why then do we fast post him being taken away, killed on a cross, raised from the dead, and ascended into heaven? heaven. We fast fundamentally for these three reasons to experience, to wean ourselves and to show. Now, let me explain to you what I mean. We fast at that moment because Christ in his resurrection and in his ascension sent the Holy Spirit and where the Holy Spirit is there, the presence of God is the thing that keeps us from fellowship with God fundamentally is sin. We still live in this sinful world. The Bible says we still live in all of our experience of living out the sinful life, and the Bible calls that the flesh. So we fast so that we can cultivate a deeper hunger for God. We fast to say no. To throw off, as Hebrews 12 says, the sin and all the things that so easily entangle us so that we may run the race that's marked out for us and we might be with the one we were made by and for, namely Jesus. That we understand sin is here and so we say, for now I'm going to train myself to forsake food and that when I get hungry I can direct that back to hungering for God. I'm going to forsake the television or I'm going to do a social media fast, whatever kind of fast, but so that you direct yourself to whom you were made by and for. It's to wean you from sin so that we might experience God because we're fundamentally about the feast in the party and not about the fast. This is why Psalm 1611 speaks about God being the feast, God being the party. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. If sin is what's in the world constantly pulling us away from God, there's a moment now post-resurrection where we know the Spirit's here, the Spirit's power that we can put off sin and take moments in our life to say, I'm going to forsake even things that are good things. Food is not sin. Social media is not sin all the time, right? TV is not sin, but I'm going to forsake these so that those won't even be hindrances to me in this moment of fasting that I might direct myself to the one who is life, that I might direct my way into the presence where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. So the purpose is to wean us from the love of the things of this world That we might experience God so that we might show to the world, this is life. This is the way. This is the truth. This is the life in a world that is pulling at us at every level to say, it's not about life. It's actually trying to lead you to the way of death. That's what Jesus says in John chapter 10. That there is one out there whose voice is speaking to all of us in all the world. And he's out to seek to kill, and to destroy. But I have come that you might have the richest, fullest life. Because I am the feast. I am the party. Come to me. Look at me. See me. I am the feast. That's why we would fast. To more experience the feast. To be empowered to then display our calling to the world. To say, He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. Capital L, capital I, capital F, capital E. Life that is worthy of the word. Rich, full life. Now, Jesus ends with a couple parables. Parables about clothes and parables about wine. We said we were going to talk about wine. Parables about clothes and parables about wine. Any good party, you want to dress your best, right? And you drink wine. Right? Jesus says that's okay. So any of you fundamentalists in the crowd, um, he's the one who made a lot of wine at the wedding feast. So the party fundamentally, what Jesus starts talking about here, is about the new way, not about the old way. No one sews a piece, verse 21, of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and a worse tear is made. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for new wineskins or for fresh wineskins. The party is Jesus. There's a changing dynamic to the party, but even now we got to know the way of the party, the way of the feast, the way of Christ is the new way. The way of the wedding, the way of the party, the way of Christ is the way with the new. And the new is not compatible with the old. Okay, I'm a young father. I have four kids. They're the only illustrations I've got, okay? But there's these same moments when you're a parent and you're raising kids that you don't want to spend a lot of money. And, and then there's just times where you're so busy you can't even think about what you need to do, right? It's just enough to get food in the cupboards to feed the kids. I can't think about getting them new clothes, right? Or my wife's not thinking about getting... You just all of a sudden sit there. And so the other day, my wife is trying to pull on our four-year-old daughter this pair of shorts, and she gets them up and puts them on her. And I look, and this old song comes in my head. This is the challenge of being in your mid-30s is you think music's still relevant, and it's not. But there used to be this hip-hop song um, that said look at those girls with them Daisy Dukes on, right? And if you didn't know, if you don't know what Daisy Dukes are, they're really really short shorts, right? The, have you guys been familiar, just pardon me here, but with the, the, the recent yoga pant controversy? I don't know if you know about this, but people were started talking about girls wearing yoga pants and all of this. So I was bringing my old hip-hop days and when my wife goes to work out and she kind of wears those Hispanic pants, I'd sing look at them girl with them yoga pants on ah, well, you know, anyways, neither here nor there. Daisy Dukes are really short shorts. So my wife pulls on these shorts onto my four-year-old daughter, and I'm thinking to myself, there's no way my four-year-old daughter is gonna wear Daisy Dukes, right? Like, there's no, go buy some clothes because the old doesn't fit with the new reality that she's four years old. So she looks inside the tag, and what does it say? 24 months old. Now, I I don't know if you guys are math majors, but 24 months is two years old. She's four. The old doesn't fit, with the new reality of who Lucian is. This is what Jesus is saying. The old doesn't compute with the new. So here's the question. What's the old and what's the new? What is Jesus fundamentally talking about? Because he's saying, when I come on the scenes, it's, here are the words, neos, like neo, new. He uses that word here, also kinos. There is a new moment here, a new reality that's come on the scene in my presence. Therefore, the old doesn't match with the new. You can't put new cloth on old pants because when you wash new stuff, what happens? It shrinks. What happens to the old stuff? Nothing because it's already been washed. Therefore, it pulls apart. What happens with old wineskins? Wineskins were animal skins that were literally stitched together with a hole at the top. Old... Skins, wineskins, get old and brittle. When you put new wine into old wineskins, new wine does this thing called fermenting. With fermentation, there's expansion. With expansion in an old wineskin, what happens? It blows apart. He's saying the coming on the scene of Jesus Christ is so powerful. Paul talks about this. That the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. That the coming of Christ was a power that was exploding the old. Therefore, we can't do new things. We can't party in the new way. We can't celebrate in the new way in the midst of the old. New wine is is for new wineskins. What Jesus was coming to do was not just to reform the old, but to entirely establish the new way. So what is the old? The old is this. As we begin to come to a close, the old is all of the things inside your heart that you know about your life and you know about the world in which you say, this is not the way it's supposed to be. The old way is the very sentiment that when you open your news app and you look at these things and you go, that is not the way it's supposed to be. A woman's not to offer on Craigslist baby clothes for a woman to come in in Colorado and then cut the baby out of the woman's stomach. The old way is the establishment that when you look at your life and you go, my dad never was quite there. My dad said these things to me, and deep inside you, even though it's all you ever knew, you just knew that's not the way it's supposed to be. The old way is that sense within yourself that you want to get there, but what's standing in between you and there is always you. And you can't get past you. You may try to shift the blame, but you're the one always in the way. The old way is that way that comes into conflict with what Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, that God sets eternity in each one of our hearts. And you're sitting there going, but I just can't get to what that everlasting life is. The old way is the sucking of death, the slow decay of time on your life that is always there every time you wake up. The old way is sin. The old way, as it's communicated in Colossians Chapter 3, if you want to try to get there with me, you can. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul begins to speak of the old way. And he says the old way is the earthly way of sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, coveting, idolatry. The old way is anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lying. But what's the new way? The new way of Christ. The new way that serves the king who in his very character is compassionate and kind and humble and meek and patient and bears with one another and forgives one another. Therefore, the new way is a way of compassionate hearts and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and bearing with one another, if one has complained against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, you must forgive. And above all of these things, the new way is the way of love. Jesus comes on the scene to fundamentally and finally put an end to the old way. And he says this new way is a way that is totally out of the norm of what you're used to. The way that you're used to, you go, but I'm only human. And he says, no, no, no. You're totally misdefining human because your humanity has been stripped and distorted because of sin. I'm here to actually show you what humanity really is and for you to live in the midst of this. As we finish here, um, we're gonna take a time of silence to do what Jesus was asking these people to do all throughout this gospel, to stop, to look, to see him calling to us, calling us into his new way that we might experience the fullness and the richness of the life he came to give. As we go quiet here, contemplate your life in the midst of this reality, in the midst of Jesus being the party, the fact that we will give up things fast in order to be in his presence, the reality that he's come to bring the new way. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for your grace and your mercy to us in Christ. God, I pray that we would be able, by the power of your Holy Spirit, to live in the new way, the way of power, the way of life, the way of richness, the way of freedom. God, do a way in us with the way of the old, the way of death, the way of darkness.